Let me ask you to bow, please, as we now come to the Word of God. Father in heaven, I pray that you would enable us to hear, to listen, to receive that which is from you and that which thus is true. So I pray you would guard our minds from that which is false, our hearts from embracing that which isn't true, but that you would work in such a way that which we think will be uh, true and thus we may embrace it and receive it. Keep us faithful to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Jeremiah and chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, please. I want to read the first 14 verses of chapter 29, and then I think just the first nine verses of chapter of chapter 30. So in the first 14 verses of chapter 29, and the first nine verses of chapter 30. Hear the word of God. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that's the context. So you have this in your mind. Uh, the exile, has, or the deportation of people in ancient Judah has already begun. Nebuchadnezzar has come in, the Babylonians, and they've uh, already deported Exiled, therefore, various ones from Judah. Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem, so he writes them this letter. So that's what this is. So these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people in Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent from the hand of uh, uh, Elisha, the son of uh, Zephan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. 
then chapter 30 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see. Can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? And why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, what I've read strikes a contrast with what we have been talking about from the prophet Jeremiah. We've been talking about judgment. This hints at it, but but it tells us about restoration. It tells us something else. We've been talking about judgment because that is what is just, that was what was just to come to these people, these people in ancient Judah. Um, God had made a covenant with them. Various ones. He had made promises to Abraham, promises to bless his people, promises to be their shield and their great reward, which means he would be their protector and their provider, promises that that he would protect them in such a way that any nation that would curse them, he would curse. Any nation that would bless them, he would bless. He promised them that their descendants would be many. He promised them through Abraham that one would come from their seed who would bless the entire earth. He proved his faithfulness to them as he delivered them out of Egypt. They had been in slavery for 400 years. He proved to them his faithfulness to them as he moved them out of Egypt in a miraculous way, brought them through this wilderness, even though they had not had great faith in God to think he could put them into this land of promise. But he did bring them ultimately in this land of promise. But in the meantime, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and there he made them a nation. He gave them laws, and he said, I will be your people, you will be, I'm sorry, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he gave them laws which would govern them, laws that would keep them in relationship with him. Laws that said, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is how you're to live. If you sin against me, if you fail in all of this, I will forgive you if you come to me in this way. I won't take your life, but I'll take the life of another. And so he set this covenant with his people that God could live among them, they with him. His presence would be there. He promised them in the midst of all of this that they would have peace, that he would protect them, he would provide for them, and he would indeed be their peace. But they were not faithful to that covenant. Generation after generation proved its unfaithfulness to God. And the generation of Jeremiah was no different. There was a wicked king, Manasseh, his son Josiah followed him. And there was reform during the the, the kingship of Josiah. They had found the word of God, they had read it, but but it brought really just conviction to the people and not real change of heart. It, It didn't really change the nation as it should have. The people continued to trust in the gods of foreign nations rather than trusting in This God who had loved them and who had delivered them, they they did not trust him. They did not joyfully obey him. 
They made alliances with other nations and said, here, I'll pay you money. You protect, you protect me. Rather than relying upon God to protect them and to provide for them. And so God comes now. And he brings Jeremiah this prophet. And, and you remember the, the call of Jeremiah from Jeremiah in chapter 1 uh, reads like, like this, verse 10. God says, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you on this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and break down and destroy and to overthrow. And so that's what we've been reading about. We've been reading and thinking about the judgment that came then, judgment which is to come, and and God's provision for, for all of that. But there's the last line to the call to Jeremiah in verse 10. That verse says, Yes, see, I have set you over this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. But then he also adds this, to also build and to plant. So this word that Jeremiah has is not just simply this word of destruction, but this word of reconstruction. Not only this word of, of judgment, but also this word of restoration. And so now as we enter these chapters, we're, we're seeing increasingly this word of restoration that's to come. We'll see judgments. This book of Jeremiah isn't chronological. It flashes back into other times and, and, and projects and so forth. But, but, but as we enter into uh, these chapters now, we'll see increasingly words of restoration. The people will in fact will in fact return. And that's what we see here. There's a, a letter that Jeremiah sends to those who are in exile. It's probably, for those of you keeping score at home, about 594 B.C. Um, and, and when Jeremiah writes this letter, the exile, the deportation, has, has begun. Um, just let me set this in some historical context for you. You don't need to remember this, but it just will help you, I think, just to get some sequence. In 609 B.C., remember when we're in B.C., we're going down in numbers as history occurs. So in 609 B.C., King Josiah dies. Good King Josiah dies, all right? And then a, a king, his son, Jehoahaz, becomes king. He's only king for about three months. The Egyptians come in and exile him to Egypt. They appoint, the Egyptians do, his brother uh, Jehoiakim to be the next king. And Jehoiakim really is a vassal king. He's really a puppet king. He really belongs to the Egyptians. And, and over the course of that time, he aligns with the Egyptians, which turns out historically not to be a very smart thing because the Babylonians come and overtake the Egyptians. And when the Babylonians come and conquer the Egyptians, then Judah belongs to the Babylonians, just as God had said all along. So in 605 BC, there's a, there's a, a deportation, a small one that happens out of Jerusalem to Babylon. People like Daniel leave and are exiled and his friends of fiery furnace fame Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego go with him. So that group is exiled in about 605 BC and then in about 597 BC the Babylonians revisit in another invasion and at that point in time there is a a larger exile that takes place and it's an exile of, of, of the key people in Jerusalem. Um, Jehoiakim has died, and now his son, Jehoiachin, uh, they aren't any more creative with their names than, than we are in terms of naming our children, um, but uh, Jehoiachin becomes king, 
And he's only king for a little while when the Babylonians come in. They take him and send him off to Babylon. And then the Babylonians appoint another king, Zedekiah, which we'll get through him in one of these weeks. And so this exile has taken place. So Jehoiachin, who is also known as Jeconiah in our text, same guy, two names, again, not unusual, and the queen mum, and the eunuchs, and the officials, and, and craftsmen, and metal workers, all the key people in Jerusalem are now, are now exiled. You can see what the Babylonians are doing. They're taking all the key people out of the city, leaving sort of the riffraff, if you will, back in Jerusalem. And, 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 and they're benefiting, hopefully, by all these key people coming into their country. So you can see that's what happens now. Jeremiah writes them a letter. And he writes them a letter, a couple of years later, he writes them a letter because there are prophets in Babylon still prophesying falsely, that is, saying that uh, to the people who are there in exile, don't worry, this is only going to last a couple of years, and then we'll get back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is saying, no, that isn't true. Don't believe that. This is going to last 70 years, meaning some of you, many of you, perhaps most of you, are going to die in Babylon. So don't think it's only going to last a couple of years. Understand what your life will be like. It'll be better than back here in Jerusalem because unbeknownst to anybody but Jeremiah, soon it would happen in 586-587 BC, the Babylonians would come back and burn everything. And all the people there would die. So the only ones who are going to survive this are the ones who, as Jeremiah had said, would yield to the Babylonians and go and, and yield to them. And so, so he says, you're, you're at least going to live. So here's how I want you to live while you're in Babylon. I want you to build houses and live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat. I want you to have children because I want you to marry. And then when you're when you have children, I want you to have your children marry so that they can have children. And you say, okay, well, what's so unique about that? And Jeremiah would say, nothing. I want you to live there. You're going to be there for 70 years. Don't give up. I want you to live there. I want you to increase, not decrease. In fact, I want you to so much live in this place where you're living is I want you to seek its welfare. So even as you're interacting in Babylon, I want you to seek its welfare. I want you to pray for its welfare because as Babylon goes, so go you. And so if it goes well for Babylon, if they do well, then, then you'll do well as well. So, so, so pray for them. That's where you are. That's where you're living. You're in the midst of them right now. So I want you to really live. Don't give up on living. I want you to live there. I want you to increase because, you see, God says, I know the plans that I have for you. And the plans that I have for you are to restore you, to bring you back. And upon bringing you back, I want you to know the plans I have for you are, are to make you whole. Not evil are my plans for you, but, but to make you whole. Notice how he puts it. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declare the Lord's plans for wholeness, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now there's a, a translation issue in the the New International Version. It's not, it's not utterly wrong. Obviously, there are great translators who translated that version of the Bible. But many of us have memorized this, something like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declare, declares the Lord's plans for you to prosper. Now, that word prosper is always heard wrongly by Americans. Right? 
Now, when ancient people would hear the word prosper, they wouldn't simply think big TVs, big cars, and big houses, right? They wouldn't think that. They would think to prosper. They would think that my life will be life. My life will be full. My relationships will be good. My health will be good. Life will be good. That's what it will be. It isn't necessarily prosper financially, but, but prosper in the context of one's, of one's life and one's living. So God says, I, I have this life planned for you. I've promised life to you. I have this planned for you. And, and, and it will be a life of, of wholeness. That's really a better translation of this word prosperity. But really, you know this word, many of you. It's a Hebrew word that you know that's being promised here. It's the promise of God's covenant. And it's the word shalom. It's the word peace. So I'm going to bring you peace. Now again, this, this word peace always has this connotation of a lack of hostility. It means everything is, is well. There aren't enemies coming to take. There aren't enemies against which I have to protect. I'm, I'm safe. I'm at, I'm at peace. So we talk about peace politically. We talk about one nation to another. There's peace, meaning there's no war between them. And even better, there's good relationship between them. There's trust between them. So, so all is well. So you can go to sleep at night and realize I'm not going to be attacked. We talk about peace and relationship with another person. We're saying, I, I trust that other person. They trust me. I, I know what to expect from them. They know what to expect from me. I don't have to, when I turn my back, I don't have to, to worry that they're going to attack me and take and hurt and harm and all of that. I, I can trust them in the midst of that. And that's living with a great sense of shalom, a great sense of well-being, a sense, well, great sense of wholeness, a sense of, of peace. But there's a, a foundational peace. There's a foundational relationship with, that breeds peace that God is always promising to His people. And that foundational relationship in which God is promising peace is peace with Him. You see, peace with Him. Because if, if one has peace with God, the ancient Hebrews would say, if one has peace with God, God would say, then what, do you, what have you to worry? What, what, what concern should you have really if all is well between us? Now we know that there isn't a natural peace now between human beings and God. What disrupts that peace is our sin. That's what creates the hostility. It creates hostility between us and God from our perspective. Because our sin says, I don't want anyone to tell me who I am. I want to tell me who I am. I don't want anybody to tell me how I'm to live. I want me to tell me how I'm to live. And so you see, when God comes in and says, no, 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 I made you, here's who you are. I made you, here's how you're to live. Sin says, I don't want any part of that, get away. And so in my arrogance, you see, I separate myself from God to live my own way. And it's that very same arrogance, that very same pride, that very same self-centeredness that creates hostility between us. Because I say to you, I don't want you at all taking away at all my freedom. 
I don't want you at all influencing the way that I live. Most especially if I don't want to live the way you're influencing me to live. I don't want you to have any control over me at all. And so the only way that human beings often have peace with one another in the midst of this kind of attitude, this kind of spirit, is if they can create boundaries. So you don't cross that, I don't cross that. Or to control the other so that you can't interfere with me and I... And so this same arrogance, this same sin that causes hostility between us and God causes hostility one to another. And then, of course, God is hostile towards us because of our sin. Because He's just and we've sinned against Him. And therefore, judgment must come if He is to be just. And so we see there is no peace. Now, we can live in denial of that. We can, we can kind of suppress that by saying there really isn't a God, therefore all is well. Or, or God's just like me. He agrees with me all the time. So there's really no problem here. I can create a God in my own image. But when we encounter the true and living God, in the midst of our sin, there is no peace. And what God promises His people is peace. What happened in ancient Judah was no peace with God. And so He exiled them. He, he, he judged them. He said, there is no peace here. We can't live together. But, but, but I'm promising you now, the plan that I have for you is peace. The plan that I have for you is not evil, it's good. The plan that I have for you is peace. And notice how He describes this, verse 12. He says, then, that is when this peace comes, then you will call upon me and come to pray to me and I will hear you. In other words, there won't be anything blocking your prayers. I'm not hostile towards you. You're not hostile towards me. You're going to want to seek me out. You're going to want to pray to me for help. You're going to admit, I can't do this. I need God to tell me who I am. I need God to direct my life. I need God to help me. And so you're going to pray. And you know what? God says, when there's peace, I'll hear you. I won't cast you aside. Verse 13, and you will seek me and find me. In other words, you're going to actually come to me because you're no longer in your arrogance, hostile towards me. And and you know what? I'm going to let you find me because I'm no longer angry with you. There's no wrath left. He says, well, I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where, you've, where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I sent you into exile. God says, this is all my doing, this exile. It may look like a military thing, but it isn't related to the military at all. It's just the means that I used to get you there because I judged you. I sent you into exile. It's all about your sin, but I'm promising you the day is coming when there'll be this restoration. Now, most... People who have been following Christ for some time know that know those verses. You've memorized them. Now you've memorized them out of context. If we understand them in context, they're even more rich. Because we read those and generally when things are going bad, we close our eyes, we grit our teeth and we say, I know the plans God has for me, they're plans for me to prosper. We usually use that word because we're Americans. Uh, to, to prosper and, and not for evil. So this is going to be easy, ultimately. It's going to really work out well for me. <laughs> God gave this promise to a people in exile. People like Daniel. It was thrown into a den of lions. He did all right, 
he had peace. Guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who said that even if God didn't deliver them from this fiery furnace, they would go through it anyway. That wasn't an easy moment, I don't suspect. God's plan, ultimate promise for them was, and for this people was, that they would have peace with him. And that was all that made. More promises came. Chapter 30, as we read, these promises are this. He says, verse 30, uh, verse 1, chapter 30, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, writes in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. Notice that. Don't let that slip by. Remember we said that there was a split in the kingdom after Solomon, to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and it had been destroyed, in a sense, hundred or so years before this time. And now, he's saying, I'm going to restore them too. So you get this whole group of people, all of these ones to whom God made, had made promises. So it isn't just the ancient Judaism, it's getting bigger now all of a sudden. It isn't just this group of people exiled in Babylon. It's this group of people that's been exiled, deported all over the place. God says, I know my people. I'm going to bring them back. He says, I'll bring them back to the land I gave to their fathers. And then verse 8. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I'll break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. That is, the people. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So God's saying, basically, I'm going to restore the nation. I'm I'm, I'm going to bring you back. There's going to be a king like David on the throne and all be well. You will have peace. Peace with me. Thus, peace with each other. Thus, peace in all of your surroundings. And I'm going to bring all of you back. I know it's rough right now, but I'm going to bring all of you back. Trust me, that's the plans that I that I have for you. And in fact, we see this taking place. It would be no surprise to anybody following the prophets that there would be one who would be raised up named Cyrus. Uh, the prophet Isaiah had spoken about this 150 years before it happened. Uh, and he said, one named Cyrus is going to be raised up. He would be the shepherd of Israel. And so in 539 BC, a Persian by the name of Cyrus, some 70 years after all of this took place, this exiles. This one named Cyrus, this Persian, was raised up by God and he conquered the Babylonians. Now it just so happened that the Persians had a different idea of how to deal with people than the Babylonians. The Babylonians exiled them, deported them. Their theory was, well, we'll send them away and they'll intermingle and intermarry with our people and that way we'll destroy that nation. But the Persians were superstitious people, and they said, wait a minute, if they have a god, we don't want to offend their god. And so anytime they conquered people, they sent the people back and said, worship your god, and by the way, talk nicely about us, just in case. All right? And so the the Persians then said, let's send these people back to where they came from. Let them rebuild their temple. Let them worship their god. That'll be great, and we're we're just covering all the bases now. And so they send the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Ezra, Zerubbabel, go back to rebuild the temple. Some years later, you might remember Nehemiah comes. But it's amazing 
They rebuild the temple. And it's good, but it's not great. In fact, the prophet Haggai records an account in Haggai chapter 2. That the, the people are saying, it's nice, but it's not so glorious. We expected more out of this. It just doesn't seem to be as great as the former temple. And God says, don't worry, it'll be even greater than the former temple. And of course, in all those years, after King Zedekiah, there was no king in Judah. And here they are. Back. But it just isn't complete. It just isn't whole. It just isn't the the way God had seemed to promise it. And then there is this day. About 500 or so years after Jeremiah writes this letter. And there's one coming into Jerusalem. They call the king. And they say he's the son of David. They say he's a king like David. We read this morning in our, our call to worship the very words that the people said. They said, Hosanna, that is, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And, and everybody there, in, in, in addition to everything else that they had, should have had goosebumps thinking, is this really true? Can we think back to the prophet Jeremiah? He says one David is going to come and sit on the throne. He said he's going to restore. He said the kingdom is going to come. Is this really the one, this son of David? It's no surprise as we read through the gospel accounts that when the angel comes to Joseph, he comes to Joseph to be Jesus' earthly father because he's of the lineage of David. It's no surprise that Jesus is born in the city of David. It's no surprise that when his birth is announced to the angels, the angels speak of peace. It's no surprise that when... Those who were in great need, need of wholeness, would call to Jesus. They would call to him like this. They would say, have mercy on us, son of David. In fact, when he would heal, when he would uh, release people from captives to demons, people would say, is this the son of David? That was his handle. People knew him as the son of David, this one who would come and sit on this throne. In fact, he spoke of David himself. There was a time that uh, he and his disciples were walking through a field on a Sabbath, and they began to pick the grain to eat because they were hungry. And uh, the Pharisees, who said you weren't allowed to do that on the Sabbath, that was work on the Sabbath, they they came to him and, and they said, Jesus, why are your disciples doing this? And he said, well, we're just behaving like David and his men. There was a time that David and his men were hungry and they were going through uh, the place and they saw this holy showbread that was in the temple and, and on the altar and they ate it. We're just being like them. And then Jesus adds this. He says, and by the way, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, David was king over Israel. I'm king over holy day, Sabbath, the rest of God. And then there was a time that Jesus was with these Pharisees again and and, and these religious leaders and he he said to them, By the way, who is the Christ? Is he David's son? And they all said, Well, yes, of course. And Jesus just smiled and said, Well, then why, in Psalm 110, does David refer to this one as his Lord? So how can he be both his 
son and his Lord. And they were confounded. Jesus referring back to David all the time. Now in this Palm Sunday, Jesus comes and he's known as the son of David, this king who's now coming to, to rule and to reign. It shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus comes to be with his disciples, his promise to them is a promise of peace. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we can find this in John in chapter 14, Jesus comes to his disciples and he promises them, he promises them this, verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He gives them, he says, peace, shalom. He's going to be that one, that king who comes, who brings them, who brings them peace. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus uh, or verse 33, Jesus puts it like this. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. In me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, he's saying, listen, you're still going to be in the world. You're still going to be in this place. And you're still going to have tribulation. But at the same time, you're also going to have peace. You're going to have shalom. You're going to have wholeness. What does that mean? You're going to, in some sense, you're going to be reconciled to God. In some sense, you're going to have peace with Peace with God. That's the very promise of Jesus. And not only that, on this very same night, he speaks to them. As Jeremiah spoke to the people of God's plan, he speaks to them about seeking, about seeking God. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And then later he says, Something similar, chapter 16, verse 24, he said, Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you'll receive, that your joy may be full. He says, listen, there's this now relationship. You're in peace with God. I'm going to bring this peace. I'm going to make this peace. Again, no big surprise that when Peter was speaking of of the gospel of our Lord Jesus... Uh, he spoke to it. Uh, he spoke of it uh, like uh, like this. He says in Acts chapter ten, verse thirty-six. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That when we preach the gospel, what are we preaching? We're preaching that there's peace. That there's peace, that there's wholeness, that there's reconciliation between us and God, that there's no hostility between us any longer, that somehow it's been made that we can call upon God and He will hear, that we can seek God and we'll find Him, that He's actually there. Again, no surprise that the greeting amongst Christians became grace to you and peace through God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. No surprise at all. Because this very one who was to come to sit on David's throne would come and bring peace. The prophet Isaiah we read this morning spoke of Jesus as this one who is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah said to us, For to us a son is born, to us a son is given in the government. His rule, his king, shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, because this one has come to make peace. Paul, the apostle in Ephesians, in chapter 2, speaks of Jesus like this, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Quite sadly, a couple of weeks ago, a um, clergyman in Lawrence, in speaking of justice, wrote that Jesus dreamt of peace. Now, I don't know Jesus' dreams, but he made peace. He just didn't dream about it. He just didn't think about it. He just didn't talk about it. He did it. He made peace. He did what was necessary in order that human beings might have peace with God. In fact, he did what was necessary that his people would have peace with God. He broke the hostility between us and God. He is our peace. He broke that hostility. We see it easily because he he broke that hostility that God has for us because he died for our sins so he paid the penalty for our sins. He lived righteously for us so that our righteousness is now, his righteousness is now given to us so that, that God looks upon us as he looks upon Christ. He sees us as forgiven. He sees us as righteous. He declares us to be just. And he also breaks the hostility in our own hearts because he breaks our pride. He humbles us. We're caused by a work of his spirit to admit that we can't and we need him. And so now we, rather than seeing him as a threat, we we see God as our life. And so we go to him. Jesus is our peace. He has made peace. Thus in Romans and chapter 5, we read this of Jesus. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He's saying we have peace with God because we've been justified, we've been declared by God righteous, forgiven. His, we have peace, and we have gained access to God. He no longer turns us away. We have access to God through this, through this work of Christ, this access by faith into this grace, and so that we have hope. And then he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We still live in this world. But because we have peace with God, we Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't, doesn't put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, we, we ask the question, how does this promise that was made by Jeremiah to people in exile about God's plans for them. How does it really apply to us? We see how it applies for them. It applied to them. They were in exile. And he says, hold on to this hope. A day is coming when restoration will happen. A day is coming when all will be forgiven. A day is coming when people will be reconciled to God. And, 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 and yes, you'll be brought back. Your people will be brought back to Jerusalem. And, and all that's good. So keep living, keep increasing and all that. But still, even when they got back, they realized, oh, it still isn't quite right. We still have a king. So the King Jesus comes. And now we live, too, as Peter says, as strangers and aliens, as exiles in this Babylon 
in this world. We know that he's come. We know that we do have peace with God. We know that we do have access to him. We know that when he pray, when we pray, he hears. We know that when we seek him, we find him. Uh, but yet we also know that this ain't it. This isn't the fullness of the consummation of all that was promised. We, we don't see him. We're not in his immediate presence, if you will. It isn't as, as John the Apostle saw it. In Revelation and 21, it isn't like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jeru- the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and heard it in a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. He'll wipe every tear away from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall... There be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We know that we live in the midst of this this world as exiles, aliens. How are we to live? Where are we to live? Building houses, living in them, planting gardens, eating, getting married, having children, having our children have children, right? To increase. Not only physical increase, but spiritual increase. God said this plan for you. You know it. You feel it. You, you know it in some sense, but not in its fullness. You know it. You know I've brought peace through Jesus. Now I want you to live. I want you to live now in that peace. I want you to live now knowing that you're reconciled to God. I want you to live now knowing that when you pray, God hears you because the hostility is gone if you come to him in Jesus. I want you to know that when you seek God, you'll find Him when you come to Him in Jesus. Because He's no longer against you. His wrath has been satisfied. So know, to live in that. To know that all is well between you and God. And that will have deep ramifications for your whole life in terms of peace with everyone. But, but know that, that you have peace with God. And so, then when difficult times come, don't lose peace. On the one hand, don't lose the objective peace, this peace that really is real, and you won't lose that because it's been made by Jesus. So now live that out in the midst of difficulties. So realize that even in suffering, you have great hope that God does have great plans for you. That doesn't mean easy life. That doesn't mean successful life as Americans define success. It means you'll have peace with Him. And in the midst of whatever circumstance, you can call upon him and know that he's at work in you. He's at work in you in the midst of that to bring good. Romans 8.28, the great corollary to this Romans 5 passage, which is the great corollary to the Jeremiah 29 passage. That to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he causes all things to work together for good. He says it's for his people, for those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what good is God bringing in the midst of all that? Easy life, lots of material possessions, good health and all of that. I don't think he's promising that. Some receive that, some don't. But if you go on in that Romans 8 passage to verse 29, he says the good is that we'll be conformed to the image of his son. There's no better good than that. Romans 5 is going to produce character. There's no better good than that because it's the very character of Christ. 
He says, here's the good I have for you. The good I have for you is that you'll be reconciled to me. The good I have for you is therefore you'll have peace with me. And if you have peace with me, what else could you need? And I'll be at work in you because there's peace to listen to you, to be found by you, and to work in you so that you are conformed to the image of my Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter in chapter 3. He says, verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, the, for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, they're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, that's where all of this will come to fruition. All the, problems, all the promises to gather Israel, all the promises to gather Judah, all the promises to gather God's people find their perfection in new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So Peter says, as Jeremiah would say, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For to him be glory now and always. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we'd get this, that we'd know this, that we would realize that this good that you have for us is peace. Peace with you that takes away hostility between us so that we can really live even in the world in which we find ourselves. May we be grateful for this peace. And I pray that you would cause us, as your people, to increase in this place. To increase in such a way that other people will know that it is really true. That there is peace and that they would know that peace that has been made by Jesus. Father, I pray that we could be witnesses of that peace in all the things that we say. Concerning Jesus, we could be witnesses of that peace by living lives consistent with all that is true of Him. That our character would be seen and that that would glorify our Father in Heaven. That others would see it and say, Oh, they have a great God. So we pray, Father, for the work of our lives, the work of our hands in various places throughout our community as people find themselves plumbing and, and teaching and repairing and helping and accounting and selling and manufacturing. Father, we pray in every endeavor, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our clubs, in our recreational pursuits, that in every area, Father, we would be witnesses of Christ 
Father, we pray this week for uh, the opportunity we have to serve those who are without homes, we pray. In the midst of all kinds of contrary information concerning you, that on this week as we share with them, that the truth of Jesus would shine forth. That hear the gospel and have peace with you. So, Father, be with us, we pray. Cause us to be a church believes that which is true and lives it, that you might be glorified. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.